Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Thanks, Braden. So as we look at Colossians 3, uh, we began uh, studying this chapter last week. So we look at it last week, this week, and especially next week. The first 17 verses here really give us a broad overview of what we call sanctification. Sanctification is uh, merely the, the process of growing in godliness. When, when God saves us, the New Testament says that uh, he sanctifies us. Meaning it happens to us at the very beginning of our Christian walk when we are converted. God sets us apart. He makes us holy in that way. But then the New Testament also talks about this process of sanctification where we begin to live out the things that God has accomplished in Christ in our lives already. Right. So last week we looked at those first few verses and we looked at how our old self has died and we have been raised with God. We've been raised with Christ. Right? We are now with Christ in God. That has happened to us. That reality is real now. And yet we have to sort out how to live that out. And that process of sorting that out and figuring that out as we go in this life, we call sanctification. And a friend of mine described the process well a couple months ago. I don't know if, if, this, is, if this quote's original with my friend or if he got it from a book and forgot to cite it. Uh, but I saw it on Twitter. I haven't had a chance to ask him, but I liked it. I remembered it. He said, sanctification is less like painting a wall a new color and more like stripping wallpaper. All right, so think about that for a second. This process of growing in godliness, sanctification, it is less like painting a wall a new color and it is more like stripping wallpaper. If you've ever painted a room, that's no easy job, but compared to stripping wallpaper, it's a lot simpler. You tend to just pick out the color. You know, the, the wall is gray now. I'd like for it to be blue. I'm going to go choose blue. I pick blue. I start the process. I just paint over it. By the end of the day, if you do it right, it's a blue room, right? But if you've ever stripped wallpaper, it tends to be a lot more complicated. It gets a lot messier. It's a lot more time-consuming. It's very, very inconvenient. My mom and I uh, removed wallpaper from a room one time uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, we had moved into this older house, and the people before us uh, had done all sorts of strange things to it. And so we were kind of undoing some of those things in our own uh, little remodeling projects. And this one time we decided to remove the wallpaper from this room. So we have to get these sponges and this water, and we have to rub it all over the walls. And then we get these little blades, and we scrape, and we scrape, and we scrape, and we get all of that wallpaper removed and find there's another layer beneath that. So then we get started again, more water, more sponges, more blades, and we're scraping and scraping and scraping, and then there's another 
layer of wallpaper beneath that. We started to realize the room was actually bigger than we realized. It just had like multiple layers of wallpaper on it, kind of shrinking its size. Eventually, we found the bottom layer, which was, of course, velvet. So I don't know what uh, stage of American life velvet wallpaper was in style, but we had scraped our way all the way back to that decade. And it took us more than a day. It took us more than an hour. It took us a lot of time. It was an absolute mess. I remember it today, right? And so again, I think my friend is right on when he says sanctification is less like painting a wall a new color and it's more like stripping wallpaper. Today, as we look at Colossians 3, 5 through 11, we're going to be talking about the particular part of sanctification, the particular aspect of this process that is the most difficult. That's the ugliest. That's the dirtiest. It's the least convenient. And I think that image of wallpaper can be helpful for us as we go forward. Now, I want to say a bit of a disclaimer on the front end. Uh, The text itself brings up some issues that I'd love to address in more detail. But to be honest with you, I I wouldn't feel like it'd be real appropriate in this context. Uh, in, In this gathering, we have, of course, men and women, young and old. Uh, And some of you are parents sitting right now with your children. If you just heard that text, you're wondering, where is this headed exactly? Uh, So this is for you. I just want you to know. Uh, I want to be a good steward of your child's ears this morning. I have every intention to do that. Uh, But here's the the challenge. Or here's the point of that, and then here's a challenge. So the point of that is there are some things I'd like to address in some more detail that we're going to speak of in terms of generalities, right? But here's my challenge. If you're a member of this church Uh, My challenge to you as one of your pastors is this week, I would like to encourage you to have more detailed conversation about this passage with some other people in this room. I think all of us need a deep cleansing that passages like this can provide us. And if we just stay on this kind of sky high general level, we could miss the blessing of really doing this hard work in our own life. So for many of us, that's going to be in the context of one of those community groups Ian talked about. Maybe this afternoon, maybe later this week, your community group talks about this in more detail. For some of you, it's going to be with your spouse. For some of you, it's going to be with a good friend. Children, I want to encourage you to have the conversation with your parents. If you hear a word this morning or an idea that you're just not sure about, let me encourage you to do the same thing I would encourage you to do. If you hear a word like that in any other context, go to mom and dad. Let mom and dad define some things for you. Let them explain some things to you. And let them have a conversation with you that would probably just be more helpful and more appropriate in, in your home than maybe trying to hit everybody at once in this kind of setting. Now, I've probably made most of you very nervous. At the very least, I've gotten everyone's attention. So let's jump in. Uh, here's what we're going to do. I want to, I wanna, from this passage, I want us to look at five truths about sanctification. Five truths about sanctification. We're going to ask, how do we make progress toward godliness? So number one, I think we make progress by rejecting the old self. We make progress by rejecting the old self. Uh, We read verse 5 there. It says, put to death what is earthly in you. Uh, We have to couple that with verse 3 that told us you're dead already. In Christ, you have died. But then verse 5 says, put to death. So what God has accomplished in Christ must be worked out and put into practice in everyday life. This is who you were. You're not that person anymore. And so now you have to figure out how to live this new life in Jesus. 
Romans 6 gives us some more context for that. It kind of lays it out in different terms. This is what has happened in Christ. Now, this is what must happen in your life. So Romans 6.11 says, Consider yourselves dead to sin. All right, that parallels what we read last week. Set your mind on things above. That parallels what we see in verse 5. Put to death. Right? That action has to take place in your life because God has begun the work in Christ. Verses 7 and 8 talk about how this is how we formerly lived, and so we must now put these things away. And I want to I draw our attention to the extent of that commandment. It says in this, uh, in this overall passage, we see phrases like, put to death, put off the old self with its practices, put these things all away. Friends, what I hope you would hear this morning loud and clear from this passage is that we are not called to manage sin. We are called to mortify it. We are called to kill it. We are called to put it to death. Now, I know and, and I believe that we will not attain perfection in this life, right? I, I don't think any of us will fully put all sin to death on this side of heaven. I don't think that's an option that our sin natures afford us as long as we continue to dwell in this world. I think that's what the scripture teaches us. But that reality doesn't change the nature of these commandments, okay? So we have to be careful that we don't just explain away statements like this by saying, oh, it says put to death, but what he really means is, you know, kind of try your best because the reality is you're never going to put it to death. So we really should just do the best we can. See, I think even sins that have plagued us for years and even battles that are made especially difficult by our current circumstances still require us to put sin to death. The command does not change. And some of us, friends, have suffered so many defeats, the hands of particular sins in our lives, that we think our best hope is to just minimize the damage. You think, I'm never going to put this to death. It's never going to be a thing of my past. I'm always going to struggle with this in some way, so I'm just going to adjust the target to trying to stay out of trouble. I'm just going to try to minimize the hurt I inflict on other people. And we've lost sight of this command, and we've lost sight of the promises we read last week that we are dead. The old self is dead. This is a heavy command. It's a heavy burden, but there's hope within it. God creates what he commands. He gives us the grace to obey. And so hear me loud and clear, managing sin, for some of us, managing sin has become the enemy of mortifying sin. So perhaps this week in another setting, you could talk with a friend who loves you well enough to give you an honest answer and talk to them about some sins in your life that you're perhaps trying to manage that you're just trying to keep at arm's length, that you're just trying to do damage control around, that you really need some help mortifying. So we're going to make prog- if we're going to make progress, we're going to make progress by rejecting the old self. That's number one. 
The second thing is we make general progress by addressing specific sins. It's, it's interesting what Paul does here uh, to, to make us, to help us grow in godliness. We really have to move past these kind of general ideas and begin to address specific areas of sin in our lives. And that's exactly what he does in this passage. In verses 5 and 8, Paul gives specific lists of particular sins. And we see things like this throughout the New Testament. I don't think any of these lists should be read as exhaustive. They tend to be kind of catered to the local circumstances. Uh, Here in verse 5, the the first list focuses especially on sexuality. In verse 8, the second list focuses especially on speech on the words we say and the way we can harm others with our mouths. So if you compare those two, it's kind of interesting to see what Paul's doing there. In verse 5, he moves from the external to the internal. He starts with sexual immorality, and he ends with covetousness and idolatry. It, It moves from the most external and obvious act to the most internal disposition that might be harder to detect. And I think part of what he's doing there is reminding us that sin finds its root in idolatrous hearts, especially sexual sin, right? There's a physical appeal, sure, but it's shaped, you just look, work your way down the rest of the list. It's shaped by lustful passions. It's shaped by evil desires. It's shaped by a coveting that does not count Christ as enough, right? So Piper says we covet when we don't find contentment in Christ, so we crave other things to satisfy the longings of our hearts. And until we begin to see sin as the exercise of our internal cravings, we're always going to be doing battle with these external things. And we're never going to work our way through that list to the internal difficult roots that really form the hard battle of sanctification. But then when you get on to verse 8, it actually shifts in the opposite direction, right? The, the beginning of the list is internal attitudes, where to put away anger and wrath, right? Those are things that well up in our heart. And then it actually moves outward toward the external, slander and obscene talk. Right? Those are the most obvious and, and uh, external issues. That's why Paul uses the term idolatry to summarize all of this is that every sin is in some sense a form of idolatry. And we, we turn away from God and what He offers us in Christ. We find that unsatisfying, and so we turn to something else instead. And as we make that turn, we're not just settling, we're worshiping. That's why it's rightly called idolatry. So to attack specific sins, I think we have to ask, what God am I bowing down to in this particular sin? And what is my heart really after? And sometimes it's kind of easy to do the external work, particularly if you've been walking with Christ for some time. You kind of know what's right and wrong. I mean, if you're a new believer, you may still be experiencing moments in your life where you genuinely sin and you don't realize you're sinning <laughs> until someone else tells you. I mean, I've been around new believers before that will just, you know, freely talk about certain aspects of their life that they, no one's told them not to do stuff like that anymore. They, they don't know they should be ashamed of it. They don't know they should hide it. They don't even know it's wrong. They just genuinely don't know. But, but for most of us, we've, we've passed that phase of the Christian life. We know what's right and wrong. We know when we have sinned. And so it's, it's one thing to just repent of that action. I shouldn't have said that word. 
I shouldn't have used those obscene words. I shouldn't have slandered this person. It's another thing to do the difficult work of tracing that word back down to your sinful heart and asking, what was my heart after when I slandered that person? How is it just being mean? How is it just being hateful? How is it just trying to hurt? I was trying to hurt them and often I'm trying to exalt myself in some way. I see them experiencing something that I just desperately want. And if I could just bring it down in my own heart, maybe I'd have a little more peace. I see, there's always something internal going on. And I think as we look forward and backward in those lists, we're presented with that question, what is my heart desiring that's leading me into this sin? So we make general progress by addressing specific sins. Number three. We're getting heavier and heavier as we go, but there is good news to come, I promise. Number three, uh, we make progress by remembering the wrath of God. It was uncomfortable talking about uh, the sins lying deep within our hearts, how much more difficult to think about the wrath of God that the text tells us is coming on account of such things. So we must put these things to death, Paul tells us, because they invite God's wrath. And it reminds us, the ultimate consequence of our sin is not personal embarrassment. The ultimate consequence of our sin is not relational difficulties. It's not even societal instability, as real and painful as those consequences are. The ultimate consequence of any and all sin is divine judgment. The question is, who is going to receive that judgment? Will we bear it ourselves or will Christ bear it in our place? But even as we think in those terms, we have to be careful that we don't dismiss this kind of language from our Bibles. We can't just put away this verse because it doesn't sit well with us. I think we have to be careful, particularly in our day, to make sure that our view of God is informed by the text of Scripture and not by our own personal sentiments. The book of Hebrews says, The Lord God is a consuming fire. He is burning hot with passion for His glory and for your holiness. And His wrath is rooted in His passionate love for you and for Himself to see His glory made known among the nations. And I think that's helpful for understanding wrath. I mean, if you love someone, you hate the things that stand in their way. You hate the things that harm them. So we can think about some of the things listed in this passage. The wrath of God burns against sexual sin because it robs people of true joy. And it turns people made in His image into tools for someone else's satisfaction. And God hates that. We need to hear that. The wrath of God burns against sinful speech because He gave us mouths to praise Him and encourage one another. And we use those mouths to tear other people down and to curse his name in some way. It incites rage in him. And we have to be honest with that reality. So I would submit to you that I think remembering the wrath of God is actually central to sanctification. There's this temptation to kind of dismiss it as thinking, well, that's for unbelievers. That has nothing to do with me as a Christian. Now that I'm in Christ, I'm protected from the wrath of God. We talked a little bit about that reality last week. We're hidden with Christ in God. 
But that doesn't mean we forget about it. That doesn't mean we dismiss it all together. I want to give you three brief reasons why you need to remember the wrath of God and your pursuit of sanctification. Number one, it reminds us that God himself will someday right the wrongs of this world. And that's important. He is the defender of the weak. He is the one who brings justice to the oppressed and brings justice to the oppressor. And that's significant. We don't need to lose that. Number two, it reminds us that Christ died to deliver us from what we deserved. Right? So the cross is more precious to us as we recognize that God's wrath has already come to us. It has come to us in the form of being poured out on his son so that we can be set free, so that we can read verses like Romans 8.1 and say, amen, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are set free from fear of his wrath. So we ought to never take it lightly. But then lastly, and related to sanctification in particular, remembering God's wrath, it reminds us that no sin is small in the eyes of a holy God. So when we read verses like verse 6, and it says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming, I think as a believer, you need to hear this because you need to be reminded that someday the wrath of God will be poured out on these sins that you and I are tempted to call trivial. Right? We're tempted to look at things in our lives and say, well, I wasn't being obscene. I wasn't slandering them. It's just a joke. I was just kind of going along with the moment. And we need to read verses like verse 6. Now, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And we think, oh, it's, it's, it's just a look. It's just, it's just an image. It's distant from reality. It's not hurting anybody. It's not harming anybody. And we need to remember, no, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So remembering God's wrath motivates us as believers to obedience. Now, if you happen to be with us today and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I couldn't call myself a pastor if I didn't warn you that apart from Christ, this wrath is still coming for you. That's a hard word to say, but I don't say it lightly. The scriptures teach us that God is holy. That he has commanded us to live in a particular way in relationship to others, in relationship to him. If we're going against that, we're not just choosing a different path. We're not, we're not just trying to find our own way. We're actually in direct disobedience to the God of this universe. We're in direct rebellion to the king of all creation. And there's a judgment day coming. But friend, you don't have to bear that wrath yourself. You can even today, even in this moment, you can cry out to Jesus. He was crucified. He bore the wrath of God in your place. And the scriptures say that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be delivered. You will be set free. You will be protected from that wrath to come. So if you've never done that, I would call you to do that today, even as we're gathered this morning. So the wrath of God is something we need to keep in mind if we're to make progression in sanctification. All right, two, two more truths. Number four, we make progress in community and as a community. 
verse 9 is kind of interesting. It kind of begins to expand the focus here from the personal to the communal. I think this is very, very important, although I'm going to spend very little time on it. Uh, I think what we get from verses 9 and 10 and 11 as we, we begin to move forward in that passage there is just a reminder that, that my sin and your sin does not just do damage to me. It actually damages us all. Right? We're, we're all interconnected in different ways. And so uh, the temptation with our sin is to want to keep things in the dark, even in the community of faith, right? And so, I mean, just think about the context here for a second. Uh, Paul's written this letter to the Colossians. Uh, somebody in the church has probably received the letter, letter. They've probably gathered the church. He's now reading it to the people. They're hearing it for the first time. And the people are maybe feeling some of the things you're feeling, put to death sexual immorality, slander, malice, and they're sinking lower and lower and lower. But maybe somewhere somebody's going, yeah, I got this going on, but nobody knows about it. So maybe if I can just slide out of here quietly at the end of this, I can just kind of get back to ignoring these things. And then right in the middle of that, he says, now don't lie to one another. Now, as you're processing through how these things land in your own heart, look around the room and be sure you're honest with these people before you go. That may be the scariest part of this passage when you think about it. But there's hope in that because hiding your sin actually does not help you. It hurts you. And in fact, it hurts us all. I think when we're in the midst of a particular season of conviction, we often think, I can't tell other people about this. I can't unload my burdens on other people. I can't let them know all I'm going through. What will they think of me? What would it do to them to know this about me? I think what uh, Paul might say back to us in that moment, just on the grounds of these verses, is what we should be thinking is, what might it do to your community if you don't tell people? What might it do to your heart if you don't get help from others? What might it do to your own battle against your old self if you try to do it alone? when God has created you to need the community of faith around you. You see, confession brings hope and it brings healing. It's a good thing. Therefore, we ought not to lie to one another. Related to that is verse 11. I'll just say briefly because we already prayed a prayer that kind of uh, united our hearts around those ideas. Is, Is just this reality that If our pursuit of sanctification is not transforming how we think about other people, then I would argue that you haven't made as much progress as you think you have. If if your progress in sanctification is personal only, and it's not overflowing into the community of your church family and the community around you, and it's not beginning to impact others who know you, then I would second guess how much progress you've actually made. Because wrapped up in this process is not only viewing yourself differently, not only viewing God differently, but also viewing others differently. So these people are no longer a threat to me. I'm no longer scared to uh, unburden myself before them. I actually see them as a help in the process. I actually see them as co-laborers in trying to become more like Jesus. And I recognize they need me and I need them. So we make progress in community and as a community. And then lastly, we make progress two steps at a time. 
I think in sanctification, we make progress two steps at a time. When you go to the New Testament, what you often find are these sort of couplets of commandments. We're told to stop something, and then we're told to start something else. We're told to put off the old self in this passage, and then we're told to put on the new self. Or to turn from one thing and turn to another, rejecting the old self and embracing the new in Christ. For some of us, our sanctification has been stunted by failing to obey both sides of that command. I mean, maybe you're trying to just paint over the old coverings. You read the new self. Maybe you you didn't like the sound of verses 5 through 11, so you just breeze down to verse 12 through 17. You start thinking about kindness and meekness and patience and all these things we'll look at next week. And you think, I want to be those things. I want to do those things. And so you just... You just, I'm going to just go to the store. I'm going to buy that color. I'm going to dip my brush in. I'm just going to start painting over the old stuff. I'm just going to start covering it up. I'm going to put on the new self. I'm going to ignore the awkward, difficult process of scraping away the old. You, your sanctification could be stunted by doing that. For, for some of us, we're focusing so hard on stopping that we, we're never turning to start anything else. It's very difficult to just stop. That rarely works. God doesn't actually call us to just stop. He says, stop this, start this instead. My favorite example is in Ephesians 4. You can go and kind of see the the mechanism of this real clearly there. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work with his hands so that he'll have something to give to others. So what is he told to stop? Stop stealing stuff. Stop taking things from other people. But sanctification does not involve just avoiding theft, right? If you've just not stolen anything this week, that doesn't mean you've passed the test. That's not all of what Jesus wants for us. It's stop stealing and start working so you can give to other people. Instead of taking what belongs to someone else and trying to make it your own, Make something that is yours and then give it away. It's the total opposite, but you've got to do both to really be growing in godliness. So we make progress two steps at a time. Paul says we are to put on the new, which is being renewed. There's this this tension here. We are genuinely new in Christ, but we're not yet fully new. And so we're putting on this new self that is day by day being renewed. And it's renewed in knowledge. I think that ought to call to mind the garden and the fall. Adam and Eve tried to attain knowledge apart from God, and it broke their relationship with their creator. And in Christ, now, God is reversing the effects of Genesis 2 and 3. He is now renewing our minds through knowledge of Jesus so that we can then turn and address these things in our lives and we can be made new. And we can live out this newness of life that he calls us to. But the message of Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, is that this can require some deep and dirty and difficult work. And it's often going to be like stripping that wallpaper in that room was long ago when we worked and we worked and we worked and we thought we were done and then we realized we were staring at more wallpaper. And actually... The farther we went into the process, the uglier it got. I think there's some truth in that too. 
Because it's one thing to say, I, I just don't want to steal anymore. It's another thing to say, I, I don't want to steal anymore, and I don't want to be the kind of person that thinks of myself as greater than other people so that I'm going to take their things because I'm more important than them. That feels a lot worse than just taking something, right? And so as we go through the process, it's, it's deep work, it's dirty work, it's hard work, but it's good work. The end result is good. We sing a song about how God makes beautiful things out of the messes we make. And that's the hope of this passage as well, is that this is not who you have to be. That This paragraph that we read in this letter is a part of a process. It's not the end result. And so when you hit those moments of rock bottom, when you realize I've got a lot of work in front of me, realize there's hope in that work. That God himself has said that someday you will be fully new. And someday he will finish the work he has started in you. Someday you will be perfect. But along the way, we've all got a lot of work to do. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion together. If you've never been here before, we have communion set up at the back of the room. Uh, After I pray, uh, the band will come up to play, and then you're free to go and, and take if you're, if you're with us this morning and you're a Christian, we would invite you to the table and we would invite you to this moment to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Uh, if, if you're here today and you're not a believer, uh, this, this is a family meal. This is a time for, for the saints of God, for those who trust in these things to remind ourselves of the central aspects of our faith. And so if, you, if you're not a believer, we would actually ask for you not to participate, to just stay in your seat. Maybe take this time to pray, reflect on the things we talked about. I'll be in the back of the room if anyone would like to talk about any of these things. I'd be happy to do that. But, but for those of us uh, who are Midlands members, who are members of the body of Christ in this room, I, I want to challenge us today. Uh, one of the aspects of taking communion that the New Testament gives us is that it's meant to be a, a checkpoint. You know, the, the New Testament doesn't say we have to do it weekly. Uh, I'm really glad we do here at Midlands because I need weekly checkpoints, right? I need probably daily checkpoints, but this is the best we can do right now. We're going to gather together as a family. And before we go to that table, I want to just invite you, if you're a Christian, to take a moment and ask the Lord, maybe read back through this passage, maybe pray some of the words of this text to God and say, are there, are there any things in my life that need to be put to death? Are there sins that I've grown content to manage that you're calling me to mortify? Are there places where I'm being disobedient? Are there there places where I'm hiding things, where I'm keeping sin in the dark that I need to confess to other brothers and sisters? And the scripture warns us that that we ought not to take communion lightly. We ought not to to take judgment upon ourselves by treating it flippantly. So I want to challenge you to assess yourself even before you go to the table because it is provided for you as that weekly checkpoint. But then lastly, and most significantly, I want to remind us all, none of us walk to that table or cling to this cross on the basis of our own strength. Our hope is in Christ alone. So we are reminded of the wrath of God. We are reminded of our failures. We are reminded of our sins, not so that we would wallow in these things, not so that we would be overcome by these things, not that we would be crushed to the point of despair, but that we would recognize our own weakness so that we would cry out to him 
depend upon him and receive the grace that he offers us. That in Christ there is no condemnation. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy that as we read list of sin in the New Testament, Lord, I know I speak for others in this room that none of these things are foreign to us. We know know them all. We know them all by heart. We know the, the damage they do and we've seen it. Some of us are living in it right now. And yet, Lord, in your mercy, you are patient with us. You are kind to us. Your, your love is steadfast to us. And just like we, we read last week, our lives are hidden with Christ and God. So you look upon us. You don't see our failures. You don't see our dirty, sinful hearts. You see, you see Christ. You see his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And so we come to you in these moments on those grounds. And as we come, I pray, Lord, that we would take these things seriously, that we would recognize the realities before us. And I pray, God, that you would continue the work of making us new and help us as believers, as members of this church, to embrace the call to help each other along in the difficult and dirty work of sanctification. May it be to your glory. Amen.